Have you thought this through? No way will that work. Are you sure? Is there any money in that? You'll never make any money doing that. How are you going to pay the mortgage? Just get a job. You're going to try to tell that? Why can't you be normal like anybody else? All right. Were your parents morons too? Savvy entrepreneur to the rescue! Congratulations, that really turned out well. I'm really good job. I'm really, really, I'm really. You know, I wish I'd thought of that. I never thought of anyone that. How did you do that? I'm so glad you're here. I wish I had the courage to follow my friends. Good morning out there. Welcome to the Savvy Entrepreneur Show. We're broadcasting here on WLCB 101.5 FM, based in the greater Chicago-Milwaukee area. If you're an entrepreneur or a small business person, or you're thinking about maybe becoming one, listen up, because this show is for you. I'm Doris Nagel, your host for the next hour. I'm a crazy entrepreneur, and I also love helping other entrepreneurs. I've counseled lots of startups and have many friends who are entrepreneurs and I have made so many mistakes along the way and have seen lots of mistakes. So one of the goals of the show is to share helpful information and resources. If I can help just a couple of you out there not make some of the same mistakes that I've made or that I've seen, then I've been successful. The other goal of the show is to inspire. I've found being an entrepreneur sometimes confusing often lonely, and sometimes you have no idea where to turn for good advice or whether you're on the right track or not. So to help with both goals, I have guests on my show every week who are willing to share their stories and advice. And this week's guest is Rob Sarwak. He is the founder and owner of something called Tiki Core Records, and we're going to learn a little more about the recording industry and record labels and what they do and some of the challenges. It's also his side hustle. So uh, I know I've certainly had a side hustle or two before. I'm sure lots of you listening have. So Rob's going to share some of the, the challenges and some of the rewards, frankly, of having a business that you love as a side hustle. So with that introduction, Rob, Thanks so much for being on the show. Welcome to The Savvy Entrepreneur. Thank you for having me, Doris. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure, especially a a fellow Illini grad. So, Rob, tell us a little bit about your background. And uh, you you and I were talking about U of I, what you got your degree in, and kind of what led you to start an independent record label. Sure. Well, um, I I have a master's degree from Illinois, and I'm from Illinois, um, the Chicago area. And I I came to that uh, degree program uh, in a in a way that was a little bit circuitous, uh, but ultimately, what I had decided was I needed to put a, a cap, so to speak, on my education. Um, I had a bachelor's, obviously, and I had another master's degree. Um, and so I needed something that was going to be marketable. And that's why I decided to go to Illinois. And I got a, a master's degree in library and information science with MLIS degree. Uh, it's a great program at, at Illinois for that area. 
Um, and that was a decision that I made with the help from a friend. And this is kind of how it all ties back together because this was a friend uh, who I've known since we were in grade school and we were um, in bands together. We would go to see music together all the time in the late nineties. And he had done the same program uh, at Illinois. And at the time this was called uh, GISLIS, the Graduate School of Library and Information Science. And now it's called the iSchool or the School of Information Sciences, plural. Um, so anyway, this friend of mine had done the program and he, he found a lot of success professionally. And we had similar sort of career trajectories. So I called him up and I said, I, I got to figure out what I'm going to do. I have this other master's degree, but I can't really do much with it. And uh, I, I just need something that's going to provide some career stability, but I don't want to uh, be a sellout, so to speak, in terms of my interests. Or um... <laughs> <laughs> Well, as an English major, I can totally relate. Um, yes. And I ended up in English because I was a music performance major and decided I didn't want to do that. Uh, I tried accounting because that's what my dad said I should do. You know, it's going to lots of jobs. And I, I literally was like watching paint dry. So um, at that point, I was into my junior year and wondering how in the world I was going to graduate. And I think English, you only needed 24 hours and I'd already taken some as requirements and some just because I liked reading and writing. Uh, so that was how I could get a degree. Um, and mm -hmm. then I realized, well, that's going to mean more, more school because, uh, I don't know what you do with an English major. So, um, I, I right. think you, you sound like a fellow lifelong learner, which is not a bad thing at all. Yeah, I would agree with that. I was an English major, uh, went to university of Wisconsin, Madison, and then. Huh, uh, that's where I went to grad school. Pretty funny. Oh yeah. So yes, up all the way around. Yeah. Um, and uh, I was in the Peace Corps for two years after undergrad, and then I came back and got my first master's degree, which was actually in Portuguese. That's a whole other story. But in a nutshell, I, I found that uh, library science was a great place for me because I could take the music and culture and literature and language and all this great stuff and kind of put it through the filter of libraries. And to me, that was uh, very close to home and exciting and, and personally fulfilling. So that's what made sense for me. And then how the record label came in was just something that was happening, you know, throughout my twenties and into my thirties um, in terms of being in bands and having friendships with people who are great musicians and wanting to help them. And this, that's, it just all came together organically uh, since about 2011. And that's really where Tiki Core Records came from, just working with people um, either directly or supporting them behind the scenes. Well, so why a record label though? I mean, you could have I guess, help them by being a groupie or raising money <laughs> or, you know, or becoming a, a sound expert or something else. Why a record label? Well, I, I think I get to do all of those things, actually. I mean, I get to be, a, uh, you know, a, a hype man, a groupie, whatever you want to call it, um, <laughs> a supporter. Uh, it's all about, and this is where the A&R aspect comes in, right? Artists and repertoire. And that's really what I would say that I 
do with this. And I just have more control over it because it's my own uh, business, but it's all of the other stuff that uh, a lot of people overlook. And so I'm not an audio engineer, right? I work with audio engineers and mastering engineers um, and people who have this great technical skill, but my skill is really more in communication and connecting the dots. So, well, you know, so, so maybe it's worth talking a little bit about what a record label does. I I mean, I kind of naively think of it as the little stamp that people put on the album cover or the CD jewel or whatever. Uh, (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's a little more than that. So uh, talk about what, what does it mean to be a record label? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's about curation, right? And having a, a roster of artists who have, you know, some kind of aesthetic affinity with each other. And that's really what I'm doing is, is working with these people I've, I've forged relationships with to make suggestions sometimes in terms of, you know, the actual repertoire, right? What, what song should you do next? You know, what, what should be released as a single, so on and so forth, or what artists should maybe be in this roster and they're not already, you know, so reaching out to new people and, and you know, develop, helping develop their career in some way. Um, I'm always on the lookout for that, but a lot of it really is this core group of friends and acquaintances uh, who I'm supporting by sometimes just saying, look, I'm going to, commission you right now to do a track and then i'm basically buying equity in that intellectual property in the form of a song so do you help them brainstorm about concepts for albums or tours sometimes um in in one of the cases of my 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 labels artists um they are pretty much autonomous. And that's because the leader of that band, and they're called the Grunions, is my friend. And also, I consider him the co-owner of this label. We started it together um, in Montreal about 10, 11 years ago. So he has his own band, right? After we had our band years ago, and that broke up. But we always stayed in touch because we had similar sensibilities about what we wanted this to be and Uh what we, what we like. So I don't really have to do much because he leads his own band. And in this, in, in this particular case, he has his own band. I've never met the other people in his band in, in this later one. And they are making all the decisions about their repertoire. Got it. Got it. So do so I assume you work out licensing arrangements with your artists? Well, so that's where it gets kind of interesting because I have a publishing entity. So a lot of folks may not know this, but when you register a, a song, a title with one of the um performing rights organizations. Like ASCAP, for example? Correct. Yeah, yeah. ASCAP is is one of the two major uh, PROs, performing rights organizations, and the other is BMI. Um, and, and in other countries, they have in their own 
entities. So in Canada, it's SOCAN, S-O-C-A-N. Um, when you register a title, you have the authorship that's attributed to the composer, right? Uh, and it, that could be one person. It could be multiple people. Right. Right. And so we're talking about the music and we're talking about the lyrics. Mm -hmm. But then you have the publishing side. Right. And that has to constitute 50% of the overall rights to that title. In many cases, it's the same individual who is the author and the publisher. Okay. But in some cases, if we have uh, equity, right, or we want to have equity for the purposes of multiple people working on behalf of that, that piece, that work, uh, it makes more sense for the publisher to be a separate entity. Um. So that's what I do in the, in the case of some of my artists who they're not really interested in getting out there and marketing it and licensing it with, for example, uh, an advertiser or another media firm that is using that piece as a part of their material. Right? Yeah. Like, like people will help, you know, take bits and use them in movies and then you get royalties from it. Right. <clears throat> right. So that's yeah. Sync placement. So it really depends on what the artist wants to do. Again, you know, for the Grunians up in Montreal, I don't have any ownership stake in what they're doing. However, when they, you know, release a record, I oftentimes will uh, buy a stock of that record on vinyl so that I have it in my possession to sell here in the United States. Oh, right. So there's an we have an agreement there, and it is you know pretty much based on the trust that I have with my friend and partner Andrew Jonka, where I say, look, let me know how many you have, how many records you have left over after your release show, which is coming up uh, this weekend on Friday. And then I will buy however many you have left and you're comfortable selling to me basically um, at cost. And then I will have that here and through our website, sell them, ship them out, so on and so forth. So that's for the vinyl itself. But obviously if they, if someone play, well, let's just say, uh, this radio station decides somebody has a, uh, you know, a lot of, lot of the other producers on this radio station play music. And if they were to play one of the Grunion's tracks, mm -hmm. you wouldn't necessarily get a royalty for that. Not personally, the Grunion's would, and, you know, whoever wrote that particular song and, you know, it's, it's usually Andrew himself, but possibly other members of his band, depending on the title, you know, they're covered by SoCan and they have their own publishing entity that represents them there. But if it's played in the U.S., then somebody it, in the U.S. would get the royalty. Well, uh, right? so it would go to whatever PRO is representing them internationally and in there are agreements and you know the US and Canada are so closely linked to each other obviously that it happens all the time um so you know it, it, most radio stations will have a blanket license with BMI 
and or ASCAP so that anytime that they play anything under either of those. Right. Right. It gets. Yeah, we do. In fact, um, it's for a long time, people had to manually keep track of the songs, the tracks that they played. And now I think there's some nice database that, you know, matches up the song to a large piece of that. But still, if you're playing, you know, indie music or something that's a little more off the beaten track, you still have to track it manually. And um, but that's just that is just to make sure that the appropriate license fees are paid to either of those organizations. Right. So it, as that's why it's so important for artists, you know, at any level to be registered with some PRO, because if it gets played anywhere, however it's tracked, right. It's going to go that blanket fee that each radio station or uh, sporting venue or whatever you can think of in in these contexts, they're paying that money to the uh, PRO and then the PRO has to pay their artists. Yeah. So um, is that a lot of money? I mean, people think, oh, you know, these artists make a lot of money with every time it's played, but um, I wonder sometimes how, how lucrative it really is. It depends on the venue because radio airplay it's all calculated by the uh basically the uh the calculation of how many potential viewers or listeners there are yeah and so a commercial radio station with uh a listenership or range rather of you know a hundred thousand their royalty is going to be different from a much smaller station. And then when yep. you're talking about community radio, it's a whole other thing. They yep. re- really don't have to deal with royalties at all because they're nonprofit. Ah, uh, um, we still pay royalties. We're a community radio station and nonprofit and we pay, we pay royalties. Okay. Well, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> I remember paying, at the station. There's a lot of people who aren't paying the royalties. They probably should, which is a whole different topic, but well, but is it through the license with one of the PROs? Yes. Like that yes. that should just be right one flat annual fee. It's not a flat fee. We have to track all the the, the pieces that are played, huh. all the tracks. Yeah. I guess I'm basing this off of the college station in Madison that I was involved with. We always uh, we would get the paperwork from the PROs, but we kind of got a uh, a, a free pass because of, you know, of the status of being a small station, but yeah. I suppose, yeah, it really depends on, on what the, how uh, the listenership and the, the range is that, and maybe even the status of the station. So, yeah. um, how did you come up with the name Tiki core? Is that related to the genre of music or something else? It's indirectly related to the genre we started it out as a bit of a joke and it, it really, <laughs> yeah, it, it was a, a made up genre and it was what we called ourselves. This is this first band I was in with my friend, Andrew. We didn't know what kind of style we were really playing and we didn't really care to get into the, um, specifics of that so we said we're just going to say that we play 
adult contemporary tiki core, <laughs> if we have to describe it. Okay. So then that became a running kind joke. of a Caribbean Polynesian flavor, and that. Well, I mean, not even. It was just like that could mean anything, you know. <laughs> Does it, it means nothing? It can mean whatever you want it to mean, and it was just sort of a tongue-in-cheek response, you know, to the obsession with genre. Yeah, and, that's, and that is pretty funny because a lot of artists spend a lot of creative energy trying not to fit into a genre, right? Well, we just we just didn't really know. It was just kind of like it's up to other people to put us into those categories. So we're just going to use this made up term. And and then that also just became an inside joke that we used as the label when we started releasing music. Ah, so what kind of how would you describe or how may, maybe your portfolio of artists, how how might they describe the type of music that they play? Well, the Grunions are an instrumental four-piece band, and they play almost uh, sort of 1960s-style, like, movie soundtrack, spy-tinged, <laughs> you know, sort of a, it has sort of a sneaky spy kind of feel to it. It's a cool. little bit psychedelic. It's a little bit surfy but all instrumental, you know, they have a saxophone player. Um, so it's, it's groovy, it's fun, it's danceable, but it's also kind of uh, vintage and a little bit, yeah, a little bit far out, Sounds I guess like, you could say. Like fusion. That's how people describe the genre. It's fusion music. Yeah. I suppose you could say that. Yeah. So as does that describe a lot of the artists in your portfolio? No. Because I have uh, singer-songwriters, I have, uh, yeah, I, I, one artist uh, who's an old friend of mine, I and mean, his music is more kind of electro-pop. Uh, that's a guy named John Forrester. I have uh, David Safran, who's from the Chicago suburbs as well. I knew him when we were very young, and you know, we were in bands that played together in backyards and basements and things like that. And so he's kind of a, a, a troubadour, kind of a crooner, um, really interesting lyricist. Um, and he lives in Evanston currently. Yeah. So, it, it, so it, it's actually a range of, it's not like you've tried to focus on a little niche of the music world. It's, it's actually a fairly diverse group of artists. Yes. Yeah. I just, I, I would find it really difficult, I think, to be super orthodox about genre and like say only having instrumental bands that have a vintage feel, you know, that would be, I mean, it's, there's nothing wrong with that, but for me, it's just practically not the reality, you know, in terms of who I know and, and who I want to work with. And so when I see people who are, putting out music and especially if I know them already and I, you know, I believe in them as artists, I want to just support them in the ways that I do uh, through the label and in an A&R capacity. So yeah, I, I, I feel like there is maybe a through line because they're all artists that I like a lot. <laughs> right. But how do you label that as a genre, right? Yeah. 
so I guess pop music generally, but you know, all original and all kind of doing their own thing in some way. How difficult was it to start a record label? I mean, is this something that realistically anybody who's got a bunch of friends that are in bands could do themselves or is it a little more complicated than that? Well, I mean, you have to start somewhere. This all started in, for me and for many other people, right, who get into music because you do play with your friends in you know, your bedroom or your basement or your garage. And, you know, there's no official designation to that. It's, it's just people creating culture and creating something out of nothing, um, you know, and, and, well, and, and also, um, you know, I'm, I'm still a musician. I'm a classical musician, but uh, playing a couple of community orchestras. And, you know, you start to find that you, your friend, your circle of friends kind of, I mean, you're kind of like, well, don't you know that? Well, no, because the world of people who are fairly serious classical musicians in an area kind of know each other and congregate. And I'm guessing the same is true of people who are in bands. Right. Yeah. So sometimes it just comes out of a scene and sometimes it just comes out of relationships. I mean, I've moved around a lot. So, you know, my, my scene or my network is, is pretty um, diffuse. And, you know, that's why I have contacts in Chicago and Montreal um, here in, in Atlanta more so over time but yeah i mean it's it's also it depends on what skill sets people have right i have my partner in palatine illinois steven sarah who has a a full uh you know a a fully capable studio setup Uh. right i mean he's able to do everything that he needs to do on his own and then you know in montreal there's a network that the Grunians are part of in terms of getting into the studio and having a mastering engineer and a photographer and a videographer. Like that network is, again, it's um, pretty autonomous. Is, is that something, though, that record labels typically either provide or facilitate to recording artists? Well, it, it really depends. I mean, in my case, it's, it's just an agreement, you know, that we have where they do their own fundraising they get grants from the you know canadian and quebecois governments and you know they have my tacit support and again you know in that case they provide me with the merchandise and you know i sell it stateside Uh, but there's no set of rules that we're following you know there's no book that i'm using to say oh this is what a record label does or doesn't do i mean if if people want to be under that umbrella it's a an agreement you know both ways where we say like yes we're going to be partners and how that relationship actually looks is going to depend uh on on the particular interactions and the particular relationship right well with with the grunions it's different than with steven sarah for example yeah but you know you you've said a word i i've heard you say a number of times and it seems to me for independent record labels i don't know i suppose if you're uh some big record label and you've got 
thousands of artists, it's a different story maybe, but you've said the word relationship a lot of times. And it seems to me it's not only the relationship initially, but it is building that trust and knowing that you're always looking out for them, looking for ways to help promote them. It it sounds like it's really a lot about relationships. Yes. And if I've said that word too much, feel free to cut out a few. No, so no. it's not too repetitive. <laughs> I'm I'm teasing you. I mean, I'm just thinking it's kind of telling. And I'm thinking about other people listening and thinking, oh, you know, wouldn't that be cool? I've always thought it would be cool to have a record label. What a cool idea. Why don't I do that? I know a bunch of people in bands. And I'm sitting here thinking, wait, you need, as you said, certain skills to be able to be successful doing this, right? You do, but how that breaks down and the people involved is is going to be potentially very different from what I have, right? Because again, I, I would not claim in a million years to be an audio engineer. I, I'm not. Yeah. I am, I am an amateur musician. I have been in many bands, you know, in the past, I... I'm starting up another one now for a long time. I wasn't playing music at all, but the involvement has to do with setting up the back end, right? Helping people at the very least just get their stuff registered so that they can potentially get licensing deals so that they're protected in terms of intellectual property. And then going from there, thinking about, what kind of online presence should there be? What gets pressed onto vinyl? Uh, what the touring plans are, if any. Yeah. I mean, I have artists who are not performing at all, but they do want to have their material available either online or on vinyl or both. So it's, again, it's really just what the people that I'm working with want to do, what they're comfortable doing, and then it's all just grown from there because, you know, it's something, it's a catalog that I'm adding to over time. Yeah. Well, talking about some of the ins and outs of the recording business and royalties and how to publicize artists, but it's also, Rob, your side hustle, right? You have a full-time mm -hmm. job doing something else. And um, talk, talk about how you balance those two things. Well, it, it's become somewhat easier um, since working mostly from home um, in that, you know, I don't have a commute most days. Uh, so that gives me an extra couple of hours. And I don't have kids. That's maybe part of it, I have to acknowledge. But I am married and uh, have a house that I take care of. And um, that takes time. It does. Yes. So it's just one of those things that for me is something that I want to do, something that I like building upon and, you know, checking in with uh, as regularly as I can. So it's just something that I'm pulled towards anyway. And then, you know, I get into that flow state of working on, you know, some aspect of it and, and, you know, oh, wow, you know, three, eight, four hours have gone by and didn't even <laughs> realize it. And, um, just fun. So, I mean, that's, that's part of it for me is that, you know, I find a lot of solitude and is that the word peace and peace and solitude, I suppose. Um, but also it's, you know, very social in the sense that I'm working with people 
And well, um, you're you're staying connected to something that you love. You're scratching an itch, maybe a pretty big itch that you don't get to do during your nine to five. Right, and you know that that is where I have to strike a balance, right? And I I find that yeah, it is is a way for me to just really kind of spread things out a little bit more, uh, balance things out, make sure that I have as much, I don't know, I guess kind of creative stimulation yeah. in my life. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, one of the helpful things, there's an awful lot of entrepreneurs out there who have a side hustle and they do it for a lot of them for the exact reason you're talking about some of them do it because that's the only way they can afford to get started and they need that day job in order to be able to try to build the business on the side is this something you've ever dreamed about doing full-time or realistically is it probably just going to be your side hustle oh i I mean i i certainly wish that i could do it full-time um i like to think that if I was around in the sixties that, you know, I would have been an A&R man, you know, in the heyday of pop music. Um, yeah. I mean, I just try to be realistic about things. Um, well, how, how has that business changed? You kind of alluding to, you know, maybe just a little too late on the curve, but that suggests things have changed quite a bit in the industry. How, how, how would you describe that? Right. I mean, I've never tried to live in New York City or L.A. So, I mean, you know, maybe that's my problem. But it's to me, it seems like a totally different landscape um, in the music industry. And and that's because of the whole delivery method and, and the way that people acquire music and what they're willing to pay for it. So, you know, obviously there was a time when everybody just had to buy records, whether right. vinyl, right? eight track cassette tapes, CDs, right. Is the ownership model. You have to own the music. Right. And, and obviously now, you know, people are not as willing to do that and and it's because they have options. Right. And so that means that the money coming in, um, you know, I look at my streams, you know, I have most of my artists, uh, on all of the major streaming platforms. Some have opted out of, of, uh, some because of various issues, but I have a distribution service that allows me to get music onto your Spotify, your YouTube, what have you. Yep. Amazon Music and exactly all, all of those. Yeah. Yeah. I, sort of in I one fell- radio. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm able to do that in, in one fell swoop through this service. But, you know, when I look at the revenue coming in, it's uh, oftentimes less than one cent per stream. Oh, wow. Right. So if somebody goes to, to my website. <laughs> it's, it's hard It's hard for it not to be a side hustle. If that, how, how do these big labels even make money? It makes me wonder. Through licensing. They make money through licensing, right? So they get the placements on commercials and in movies. Um, that's where the big money still is. I mean, it always has been, right? That's where you get into the tens of thousands of dollars for the, just, just for the, the flat, payment. And, you know, oftentimes there isn't a royalty agreement. It's just 
So, so I suppose if you had movie connections, and maybe you do, I don't know, but uh, you could be peddling some of these tracks that are on your label to be used in movie right. commercials, and then, then maybe the economics might change. Is that? Yeah, is I that mean, what you're it saying? would. Yeah, that would be a game changer. Um, the the problem is that everybody is trying for that at the same time. <laughs> yeah, bad. Right. So, I mean. To give you one example, I mean, I had a placement on a podcast for one of my songs in my catalog, and that was the first time that that had happened, and it was unsolicited. Someone reached out to me to to ask if they could use it, and you know, we had to negotiate, and that was just and a flat payout. I have another couple of tracks that are represented now by an agency and they're pitching that music on our behalf, our meaning mine and, you know, any other contributors to these tracks that has not resulted in any deals yet, but it, you know, it's something that is going on behind the scenes and I can check to see what the pitches have been, but I don't have any control over those Right. Negotiations, right? Right. You don't know if it's they don't have the right relationships or they're not very good at pitching or the music sure. just doesn't have popular. It's all, it could be all kinds of things, right? Luck right. of the draw, some of it. Exactly. So there, I think, is potential for another unsolicited kind of situation. I think that's always out there. And that's why I have to stay focused on social media and making sure, especially there that I have all of the music under my label available and, you know, easily accessible and and all of that kind of stuff, just the the nuts and bolts of it. Um, So that, for example, people can use those songs and if the whatever video or but it's usually a video, you know, when you people put something together on TikTok or on Instagram reels, for example, if the song that goes with the video, I should say it this way. If the video goes viral, the song usually goes viral with it. Yeah. And right. it's sort of a, two for one deal in that sense. But then the, the music oftentimes becomes viral in its own right. Yeah. Yeah. And it can be extracted and other people use it in their own content. You may need uh, music recognition software to identify where people are using. Songs. Well, see that, see it is, it's already taken care of fortunately, right? Because when I'm making these decisions for which outlets I want music to go onto through this distribution platform that I use, I'm oftentimes clicking. Yes. I want it to be on TikTok. Yes. I want it to be on Instagram. So it's already, yeah. And all of the metadata is already there. So you can see who the artist is. Uh, and it's it's not as if the person making the video is recording the music from somewhere else. They're inserting the music from the right. database in right. the social right. media platform. Right. You know, you mentioned earlier vinyl, and I had read somewhere that vinyl is making a bit of a comeback. Is that what you're seeing too? 
Yes, it has made a comeback, but I, I definitely put an asterisk on that because it's usually people who are already big collectors are focusing on vinyl and they're not really interested in any other physical slash ownership uh, formats. Or, or audiophile people, right? I mean, there are, I know a couple of um, pretty serious musicians who are like, I'm, I just don't like CDs. It just, you, you lose some of the range of sound and the depth of sound. And they're mm-hmm. talking obviously about classical music, but I'm sure the same is true for uh, any kind of music, if, if that in fact is true. Well, I've heard arguments for CDs uh, being one of the better formats, uh, you know, even up there with vinyl and, you know, just having different attributes. Um, But, you know, what I do know is that many digital formats uh, can oftentimes be lower quality, right? Because of compression uh, issues. And and so I think um, it, it depends. I mean, I think people like vinyl, not only because of how it sounds, but because it's more of a focused listening experience. Right. And you're just putting, yeah, you're putting on the record and you just let it play. So I think those are factors that are part of this too. But yeah, I mean, I think people like to show what they care about, you know, in their collection and have that visible to people who come into their home and yeah, and then there's, you know, DJs who still spin vinyl. Oh, some yeah. Things, yeah. yeah some, some things are just not available other, in other places, on other formats. Yeah. Well, what do you see as the future for Tiki Court Records? I mean, where where would you like it to grow? I just want to keep working with artists who I think are really interesting. Um, I want to work with more people here in Atlanta um, I've started to do that more so in the last year and a half, two years. Um, yeah, I, I want to, you know, be more of a grassroots endeavor here and kind of work with the scene and, and bands and individuals. How do you go about doing that, by the way? Do you just go to a lot of clubs and hang out and chat up the artists? I I don't go to a lot of live shows, to be honest, not in the last two years. I mean, there was obviously a big pause in that too right right i'm starting to more um i do follow a lot of artists on instagram and twitter um i have a great vinyl focused record store very close to me that just opened last fall oh fun yeah so that's you know a really great focal point um for music and then you know i've started to do pop-up markets as well uh as tiki core records so i'm selling my material i'm selling vintage records from my own collection sort of as a pop-up record store so wait, where, the, where do you mm-hmm. do these pop-ups I, I'm, I'm not farmers markets but like concerts it, or what no it so there's a group called georgia vintage goods and every month if not more frequently, they organize these events and they're outdoors and you, you have 60, sometimes more different vendors. Many times there are a lot of uh, vintage clothes vendors, but all kinds of different craftspeople and um, 
resellers and things like that, you know, doing stuff in the vintage realm, but a lot of times it is just new merchandise that they have crafted, you know, prints and, uh, artwork of different kinds, sort of like Etsy, but live in real Ah, life. Yeah. Right. So those happen. Uh, I've gotten involved with them and I have a booth and a tent or I have a, a booth that is a tent and a table underneath it. And I have my stuff for sale and I talk to people and make new contacts that way kind of spread the word and just talk about music. And so that, that's something I've done in the last um, six to nine months or so. Very cool. So for you, what's the best part about Tiki core records in your side hustle? I really like being involved with helping people um, do stuff that they might not be inclined to do. The reality is that even super talented musicians may not know about why they should get their song titles registered through a a PRO or what that even looks like. How do you become a publishing entity? How do you get recognized as a member of ASCAP or BMI and, and why you should do that? You know, those nuts and bolts things that I just figured out on my own, you know, so helping people with that, um, talking to people about, you know, what they want to do as an artist, what they're trying to say, you know, through the style, through the song selection, through the lyrics, working with them on that and, you know, helping them sort of curate that. Um, Sometimes I get involved in, you know, the actual composition as well. You know, so I write lyrics. um, I have songs that I've written myself. Very cool. Yeah. So just all of it really is exciting because to me, you know, culture is one of the most uh, taken for granted aspects of, of human life, but also one of the most important, right? The way we express ourselves. As a classical musician, I could only agree with you. Right. Yeah. So just being involved with culture and, you know, original pieces and original voices, that's what's really great for me. What's been the hardest or most challenging part about it for you? I have to put it aside all the time and, you know, focus on something else all the time. So I'll have a great idea for something and then I have to put it on the back burner and then I, you know, get busy with something else that I'm more obliged to do. And then I kind of lose track of that original idea. And then I have to go back and bring it up with an artist, for example, like I'll, I'll suggest a, a song that I know about from their repertoire that they've never recorded, but I want them to, and I want to you know, get equity in that and support them in whatever costs they have in, in producing it. But sometimes that'll take six months to a year. <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah. Musicians aren't always the most uh, linear of people. It's partly what makes sure. them unique and interesting. Sure. But yeah, but I, I really chalk it up to um, all these other demands, right, that, that we have on our attention. It's challenging the sense that it's just something that we have to deal with and accept, but like push through. Well, I'm guessing some of your artists are also, this is also a side hustle for them because it's tough to make it as a musician of any kind. Right. Uh, so um, they are 
in a few cases, actually professional musicians, but in different kind of hustling capacities, right? So I think that's true of a lot of musicians. I mean, I'm, you know, but teaching and being in pit bands for musicals. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about the, uh, first chair cellist. I mean, she teaches little kids and she plays gigs at weddings and, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of it's not probably what she would prefer to do if she had uh, endless amounts of money, but you know, it's, it pays the bills. Exactly. Yeah. So just accepting that and being okay with that, you know, it's something I'm getting better at, but at times it is frustrating because, you know, when you really want to do something and you want to share it with the world, you kind of want to do it yesterday. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, it's just, you know, time and logistics and finding the space and creating that space. It's challenging, but I've been able to do it over and over again. So I figure why stop now? Absolutely. You know, looking back on your career, is there anything you would have done differently as it relates to your record label? Well, I I would say I would do anything differently. Um, I, I guess I would, I, I would spend more time with my artists, I think, in person. But then again, I've had to look out for myself and my own source of income. And I think that's always been understood. It's, it's a balancing. It's, I think what you're saying is it's tough having a side hustle that you're really passionate about. Yeah. And just you know, time and space constraints, right? I know that if I, if I lived uh, with my dad in Glenview and drove over to Palatine and, and every day sat down with uh, Steve, Sarah, in his studio, yeah, we would get a lot done. But um, my career brought me to another city. My uh, right, my personal relationship with my girlfriend and now wife was a part, big part of why we wanted to move together based on the job yeah. market. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, I I wanted to have certain things in my life. It's all about balance. You can't have everything, right? Right. So now it, you know, it is a question of making the time and making the effort to keep up those connections. But I feel like there's a a really strong foundation uh, among everybody in this endeavor where, you know, we know that it might not be the timeline, you know, of we'll get it out within a month, you know, if we're working on a yeah. song or something. You just but, have to be realistic. Yeah. Is there any advice you'd give to entrepreneurs who are starting out, maybe especially people who are trying to balance their side hustle with their day job? I, th- I think you really want to focus on your team and having complementary skills. Because if you try to do everything on your own, you probably do need to focus on making that your full-time focus, making right. that your full-time job in some way. But if you if you delegate responsibility and you have people who are the best at doing a certain a certain task or a certain 
area of whatever you're doing, then you can build it together a little bit more organically and you have this synergy. So I would say be very patient with it and don't expect to be able to quit your day job uh, within a certain amount of time. You know, it may, may be sooner for some people. It may take quite a long time and it may not ever become your, your full-time job. But at the same time, if you are getting something out of it and you're creating something that you're proud of, right? you should just grow and build on what you have and, and be patient with it in that way. I think that's great advice, Rob. Thank you for that. Last question before I let you go. How can people reach you or learn more about Tiki Core Records if they're interested? Everything is at tikicore.com, T-I-K-I-C-O-R-E. On Instagram, I'm at Rob underscore Tiki Core. I'm on Twitter at Tiki Core Records. Um, we have a Facebook page as well. I believe that's at Tiki Core Records too. Uh, but yeah, everything is uh, linked to tikicore.com. And are there are there sample tracks people can listen to on your website? Yes, and most of the music is uh, available to stream through tikicore.com, which is run by Bandcamp. Ah. Which I really, yeah, I really prefer people to check out because it's it's the most equitable music platform out there. What it does is it allows you to stream uh, three times and then you are asked to consider purchasing the track. Ah. Right. And either we offer stuff either at under a dollar or just around a dollar per track. And then for albums, it's even less, you know, per Per track track because it, right. you're, You're getting it at once. And and that's called again what? Bandcamp. Bandcamp, just like like it sounds. Right. Rob, Rob, thanks so much for being on the show this week. I really enjoyed learning more about the whole recording industry and um, record labels. It's a whole new world for me. So thanks for being on the show this week. Thank you for having me, Doris. You can find more helpful information and resources on my website if you're interested, which is globalocityservices.com. That's my consulting website. But I've also just created a brand new, finally, yes, finally, a dedicated show page called the SavvyEntrepreneur.org. And uh, I'll be populating that site as the weeks go by. You'll find more and more things on there like tools podcast archives, blog articles, and other kinds of resources for free. So check out both of those sites. I welcome comments, questions. My door's always open. You're interested in being a guest or you know somebody who'd be a great guest or just want to shoot the breeze about a business idea. You can always email me at dnagel, N-A-G-E-L, at thesavvyentrepreneur.org. You'll always get an answer back from me. Now, be sure to join me again next Saturday at 11 a.m. Central, noon Eastern. But until then, I'm Doris Nagel, wishing you happy entrepreneuring.